So we're in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Bibles back there if anybody wants them, but uh, we're right in the middle of Paul addressing uh, the church at Corinth, and he has just finished uh, saying to the church at Corinth that uh, they should not forbid uh, the use of tongues in the church. Uh, speaking in foreign languages uh, supernaturally, and uh, also that um, they should seek to prophesy. They should actually look for the gift of prophecy to be part of their spirit-filled lives so that they might uh, minister to the church the things that the Lord had been saying to them. So uh, with that, uh, he comes to... Uh, verse 1 of chapter 15, where it says, Moreover, brethren, uh, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you were saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So you have to you know, get this in context and remember that Paul's writing this letter uh, because uh, people have come to the church at Corinth and they're part of what they're saying is that Paul used to be solid in his teaching and that he's not anymore, that he's somehow, uh, you know, fallen apart and drifted away from what he originally was doing. And Paul is saying, you know, I'm preaching the same thing uh, I've always preached. I'm preaching the same thing as he's going to describe that the other apostles preach. It's not anything new. Uh, the The accusation, as we're going to look at, is uh, they're trying to defame Paul so that people won't listen to him anymore. Uh, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul specifically says, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And uh, that term accursed, anathema, uh, means literally that they would be eternally condemned. So, you know, the gospel message contained in the scripture that we know and understand is the only gospel that can be preached or should be preached the area where this sort of is you know, applied to us today is a lot of times uh, Christians run into Mormons. And, you know, the, the Mormons will um, insist that they worship Jesus Christ. They'll insist they're preaching, you know, the same gospel. And in the end, they're not. Uh, the Jesus Christ that they worship is an entirely different Jesus than the one we worship. You know, uh, I've known Jason Kane. I'll just use him as the example since he showed up. So, you know, we've known one another for uh, 18, 19 years now. And uh, if somebody comes to me and says, oh, I know Jason Kane, big, tall, black dude, real deep voice, you know, I'd say, you, you know, no, that's Jason Kane, lives over there in Surrey. I'd say, you know, the, the Jason I know lives in Surrey, but. You know, he, he's Caucasian guy, uh, you know, construction worker. Uh, you know, I've known him for a long time. They've got a different Jason in mind. 
the Mormons have a different Jesus in mind. Jesus from the scripture, from the Bible, is God who became a man and lived on earth. Uh, the Mormons say that uh, God the Father had a wife in heaven, uh, you know, God the Mother, and uh, they had children together. And two of those children were Satan, Lucifer, and Jesus. And uh, God wanted them to put forward a plan to save the people of earth. And uh, God the Father liked Jesus' plan better than he liked Lucifer's plan. And so Jesus has been made the savior of this world. And the reason Lucifer is interfering with it is because he's the jealous brother who doesn't like Jesus. So he's trying to interfere with Jesus' plan of salvation. That's an entirely different gospel. That's an entirely different message than the Bible. So even though we're using you know, similar terms and, and similar names and trying to describe things in ways that feel familiar, they're, they're very different. It's, it's not the same thing. So uh, you know, within this discussion, uh, just to get back to this subject, the reason Paul is addressing it this way is, is not because there's any real question about what it is that he's teaching. It's because critics have come into the church at Corinth and they're trying to take over. They're trying to undermine Paul in the hearts and minds of the believers at Corinth. And one of the big accusations is, well, he's preaching a different gospel. And, you know, the question comes up, well, what do you mean by that? Oh, well, you know, Peter, Peter preaches one way. Paul preaches a different way. Well, Paul might even preach a different way, but he's not preaching a different message. Uh, you know, think about the fact that Paul even confronts Peter, right? Or we have to hear that Paul uh, goes to Peter when Peter stops eating with the Gentiles. Jews from Jerusalem show up, and, and we're going to see some specifics in regard to that. And uh, Peter, who had been previously eating with the Gentiles, stops eating with them. Because, all you know, the Jews are here from Jerusalem and, you know, want to be in good standing in favor with them. So I'll stop hanging out with the Gentiles. Paul has to go over and correct Peter and say, how is it that you were living like a Gentile and accepting the grace of God for salvation? But now you've gone the way of these Judaizers uh, so much so that uh, Paul's acquaintance Barnabas was even being influenced by Peter's conduct. Point being, they all preached the same message. They all Peter submitted to that. Peter uh, took the correction of Paul and modified his behavior to follow the word of God. So in verse 3, Paul says, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. So, um, not so much that he's talking about uh, the order uh, as he is saying, I'm the one who first received it. You didn't have it. I brought this message to you. So, as far as who should be teaching who, I, I'm the one who taught you and brought you into this faith, and now you guys have got it in your head like it's time for you to start leading me. Paul is literally saying, 
it, it's clear that all along the way, I'm going to be your teacher. I'm the one who brought you. didn't have the gospel message. You weren't walking in salvation. I brought that to you first. And that he was buried, so he, he expounds upon what it was that he taught them, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the scripture, and that he was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep, literally passed away. Uh, the early Christians uh, referred to believers who died as having uh, merely fallen asleep because they believe in the resurrection, and he's going to talk about that in just a second here. Uh, within this portion, it's very important to understand that when Jesus was raised from the dead, it, it wasn't just the twelve that saw him. It wasn't just a handful of people that saw him. Uh, he mentions here that there was this one occasion where 500 believers were gathered together all at the same time, and they all saw Jesus alive, having been resurrected from the dead. Um, you know, the, the order of resurrection uh, that continues through uh, 40 days again it wasn't just a short period of time jesus was resurrected and for over a month was amongst christians and believers and ministering and walking with them and caring for their needs uh, you know when, when uh, the critics uh, want to say oh well you know it was just a few people or just a handful of people uh, jesus was alive after his resurrection on the earth, ministering to the body of Christ to hundreds of people at a time for over a month, uh, for, for 40 days while he continued there. So lots of eyewitnesses to his resurrection. Um, now he's making the statement about uh, his message coming later than the other apostles, but you know he did get the message. It wasn't it wasn't lost in him. You know after that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. Um, the apostles in Acts chapter 2 uh, come to a point where Peter is saying, Psalm 109 verse 8 uh, says, it was a prophecy about Jesus, uh, let his days be cut short and let another take his place of office. So Peter is saying, well, that's clearly a prophecy about Judas, and since it says let another take his place of office, then uh, we really need to fill that office. So they, uh, they take the 120 who had followed Jesus throughout his whole ministry, and uh, they select from amongst them uh, two names, and then they draw lots, literally the short straw, and it falls to Matthias, and they say, okay, well, Matthias is Judas' replacement, and that's the last we hear of Matthias. He, he's not recorded anymore in the scripture or in church history. There have been some things added hundreds of years later, but they aren't really uh, credible. The, the point being, Psalm 109, verse 8, saying 
of Judas let his days be cut short and another take his place of office was referring to the fact that Jesus was going to meet Paul on the road to Damascus in the book of Acts and he was going to choose Paul and make him the replacement for Judas. You think about it. If Jesus chose every one of the 12 and said, these are the men who are going to follow me, then why would it stand to reason that suddenly Peter or the apostles gets to take over choosing and appointing who's going to be the replacement? It was simply an indicator in the scripture that there would be a replacement and that they should be looking for that replacement and paying attention to who Jesus chose, which is Paul right here. He, he was chosen like the others were, but out of time, not in the same order or the same uh, method that the others were chosen. So he makes that statement. Then last of all, he is seen uh, by me also as by one born out of time, you know, out of its proper place. For I am least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, not empty. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. So the explanation of how he had uh, persecuted the church and uh, the fact that it was uh, out of ignorance he was not aware of what he was doing that persecution uh, was intense enough to where it actually was death he was present when they stoned Stephen to death uh, being a member of uh, essentially the Supreme Court giving the approval to the execution of Stephen we make the assumption based upon things that he says that he had other people put to death, not just Stephen, and then on top of that was on his way to Damascus to have more people put in prison and probably more people put to death. So he was vicious uh, beyond uh, reason and uh, you know definitely persecuted the church within that discussion at uh his message uh, is the same. His conversion, you know, okay, his message, uh, you know, the, the, the critics that are in Corinth saying we shouldn't listen to Paul, Paul is saying, look, my life's on the line. Uh, you know, my conversion was to go from the arresting officers and the executioner to now I'm one who preaches this message and even carried to you the church at Corinth. I would think that uh, you know the people of Corinth would be most uh, impressed with Paul's conversion and the fact that they were converts because of Paul. You know, if you've got somebody that used to persecute the church and now suddenly they're your pastor, that's that's pretty dramatic the conversion, the change, to see a man go from being an enemy of the faith uh, to someone who is a promoter of the faith. You know, I just, Lee Strobel just popped to mind. You know, here's a guy writing for, uh, you know, major newspaper in Chicago, investigative journalist, 
avowed atheist, despises Christianity. His wife's a born-again Christian. She's constantly trying to bring him into the faith and bring him uh, to the Lord. And he finally, in his you know extremely sinful lifestyle, uh, makes the decision, hey, I'm an investigative journalist. I'm a smart guy. I know how to research things. I'll research this whole Jesus Christianity thing. And, uh, you know, I'll shut my wife up so I don't have to listen to this Jesus Christianity anymore. And uh, so he begins the investigative process of researching the Bible and Christianity and the faith. And in the end, the guy publishes the book, you know, A Case for Christ, because he's converted in the process. You know, if someone like that is your pastor, you know, they've got credentials that are worthy of listening to just in their conversion. I mean, forget all that they teach. Forget all the depth of what they might have to share with you. Their conversion is powerful enough that you should be paying attention to that. Now along come a bunch of critics who are trying to overthrow your pastor and take over the church and run the show who are renouncing your pastor and saying, oh, that guy... He used to be a good preacher, but he's changed his tune. He you know, preaches a different gospel now. You don't have to listen to that guy. That's what's going on at the church of Corinth. And Paul has to say, wait a second. I brought you guys into the faith. I'm the one who's been preaching to you and teaching you all these years. And nothing I've said has ever changed. I'm preaching the same way I ever did. How is it you don't, don't respect the conversion process that I went through? How is it you don't respect the message that I delivered to you, that you're being pulled away by these guys? It's an unfortunate thing that you know there are people like this who, uh, out of jealousy, come and try to take over and build on someone else's work. Verse 12, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection from the dead. Now listen, before we move on, it, you know, if you've studied the scripture much at all, you might have just had a certain passage and a certain teaching and a certain situation pop to mind. Uh, you know, how is it there are those that say there is no resurrection? It's not a new thing, right? Matthew chapter 22, verse 23, that same day, the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked. And that whole process of, there was a woman, and she had a husband, and he died without giving her a child. And so, by Jewish law, she married the next brother. And, you know, he died without giving her a child. And so, she married the next brother, and married seven brothers, one after the other. You know, nobody stops them and says, hey... You know, has this woman ever been investigated for murder? You know, I mean, how, how in the world is it that all of her husbands are dying? You know, it's a hypothetical question. They don't believe in the resurrection is the point. Rather than discuss that in the Sadducees and went on, went on in Matthew, uh, the thing you can see is the fingerprint of the Sadducees in this Christianity that is occurring in Corinth. Right? They're not actually followers of Christ. They're, this, this particular group 
of people who are trying to pull the believers away from Paul quite clearly are most strongly influenced by the Sadducees. They, they come from that Jewish religious order from Jerusalem. And whether they've come into Christianity or not, they're still hanging on to things that come from their upbringing and their background with the Sadducees. I was doing uh, jail ministry uh, a number of years ago, and they're preaching sermons to the guys. And uh, one of the guys in the discussion uh, suddenly says in the midst of it, well, uh, I thought Jesus was uh, created. Uh, why, why do you keep saying that he's God? And I say, uh, why do you think Jesus was created? You know, anybody who's been in Christianity mostly thinks of Jesus as being God who became a man, dwelt amongst us, as John chapter 1 says. And he, he said, oh, well, over here in Proverbs chapter 8, and, and he goes over to Proverbs chapter 8, and he starts reading. And I say, oh, wait, wait, wait. Uh, you were raised in or around the Jehovah's Witnesses. And that's why you're thinking that way. He says, I didn't have anything to do with the Jehovah's Witnesses. I said, no, no, you have, right? And, and the way he's now taking an angle with me, uh, I, I kind of back off a little bit because I can see he's confused, right? And, and uh, so I'm thinking like his parents or, you know, somebody has, you know, brought him up in the Witnesses, and that's why he's thinking this way. And what I know and understand is, that's a false teaching, and they, they specifically use Proverbs chapter 8, which is in fact referring to wisdom, not Jesus, and, and talking about how God ordained wisdom and brought it forth and used wisdom in his creation, and they misapply it. It has an application to Jesus, but they misapply it too strongly to mean that Jesus was created. Okay, and I say, no, no, you, you have, you definitely. Uh, you know, have been taught and influenced by the witnesses. And so he kind of shrinks back, and you can see he's thinking in his own mind, and I move on with my study, and a while later he raises his hand and says, you know what, I, I just realized uh, you are right. And I said, oh, about what? I've kind of lost track. And he says, uh, it, it was a kid that I went to high school with, and uh, it was his uncle that was uh, talking to us, and, and he took us to this passage on a couple different occasions and just drilled on us, and he said, now that I think of it, he said, I didn't put it together until right now, they, they attended the kingdom hall of Jehovah's Witnesses. You know, you're, you're going to uh, realize that the more you study the scripture and the, the longer that you walk with the Lord, Certain things will just stand out to you as far as truth goes, as far as falsehood goes. You know, years will pass and you'll be able to recognize where certain good teachings come from, where certain false teachings come from. Here, this big question that Paul's about to launch into regarding the resurrection stems largely from the fact that these Judaizers who have come from Jerusalem who are trying to destroy the church at Corinth and pull it away from Paul are strongly influenced by the sect of the Sadducees. <clears throat> I mean, if I asked you right now, 
you know, which is the proper organization to belong to, Sadducees, Pharisees, scribes, or Christians, right? Because they are separate entities. You, you would go, well, obviously Christians, right? The telltale, as I said, fingerprints of the Sadducees are all over this group that is pulling these people away. So he addresses that issue of resurrection beginning in verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and our faith or your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up. You know, he's putting the hypothetical if there is no resurrection, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Okay, now uh, he, he even goes on to say elsewhere that if there's no resurrection, then the fact that we keep ourselves from certain uh, things that the world participates in are really missing out. I mean, if the pleasures of this life are all that there is, if there is no life after this, then why are we trying to restrain ourselves in any way? Why are we keeping ourselves from anything? You might as well just, you know, throw yourself into the ride of life and take whatever pleasures, no matter the cost, because as soon as you're dead, it's over. There's, there's no accountability. Now, he, he gives some evidences here, but I just want to take a moment and talk about the fact that resurrection is real today. Um, there are many occasions recorded in modern Christianity where people have prayed and seen people resurrected from the dead. Uh, two examples, one that I am very close to and aware of, my friend Josh Lawrence. Uh, Josh was miraculously delivered from a life of drug addiction and crime, surrendered himself to the service of the Lord, entered the mission field, and he and his wife Kelsey are now in Kenya, Africa, serving the Lord. Um, radically changed. I mean, radical to the point that uh, Muslim terrorists came to their home years ago in the middle of the night and threw chemical grenades through the windows of their house and knocked their whole family out, infants and adults and everyone, and then went in and ransacked the home, stole all of their possessions, left a knife on the pillow next to his wife's head with a note that said, leave the country immediately or die. You know, and years later, they're still in Kenya, Africa. 
they own some machine guns now, but um, they, you know, they, they are still in Kenya, Africa, serving the Lord and, you know, built a nice wall around their home to keep people out that they're able to lock at night. So, you know, they're, they're there radically serving Christ. They were home um, just two years ago and visiting uh, Kelsey's parents and the kids with them. And their daughter fell in the pool and drowned. And I mean drowned. Not coughing and sputtering and spitting like one of the other kids ran in and said something's wrong with the baby sister. She's floating in the pool. And everybody panics and they go out and pull her lifeless dead body out of the pool. She's, she's been gone for a while. And they begin a whole process and a long time has passed and the ambulance is on the way and she's gone. And Josh overwhelmingly heartbroken leaves the pool and goes to just call out to God and scream his pain at the Lord. And moments later, the child is alive and well. And is alive today. Um, there are recorded occasions where missionaries pray over people. And they are resurrected back to life after being dead for days. Uh, William Tennant, and this one I really like, was a preacher who um, was preaching here in the 1700s to the citizens of America. And today, if you study uh, early American history, William Tennant is the man who preached to the preachers and taught the preachers who were preaching at the time of the independence of this nation. So profoundly influencing uh, early America. And um, doing that in rebellion to uh, the universities of Europe because you had to go to Europe and get your training for uh, the ministry in European colleges and be ordained in Europe in order to go anywhere in the world and ministry. You had to be a licensed minister. And Tennant understood that the poor young Americans here that loved the Lord were never going to be able to afford to go to Europe and be trained that way. So he started holding classes. His first classes began at five o'clock in the morning and he typically taught until 8.30 and 9.30 and 10 o'clock at night. He taught biblical courses all throughout the day. And the young men and women who wanted to be trained came and were taught by William Tennant. Um, the European colleges hated him because he often referred to them as dead ministers. He talked about how unsaved ministers produced unsaved Christians, and they didn't like that because in their mind anyone who was a Christian had to be saved or born again. He was very confrontational. His son was especially gifted 
but didn't want to join his father in the ministry and uh, resisted that for a long time, became dramatically ill and died. Uh, they were waiting to bury him because family was going to travel and be there for the memorial service. And so his son was put into a barn and just lay in wait for his burial was there for three days and uh, they even the family even recorded that uh, his body smelled really horrible no embalming process no refrigeration and after three days of uh, you know, decomposing and he sat up in his coffin and spoke to his family and they took him out and he entered the ministry with his father and began to train the ministers here in America. Um, needless to say, it was a very powerful conversion for him. And his preaching was uh, not fiery, but well listened to. Uh, this issue of resurrection is not something that is just kept in storybooks for Bible classes and Sunday school. It is our hope. It's what we're looking for. It's what our lives hinge upon. It's what our whole faith is focused upon. The God of the scripture has power over death. And here he's saying if there's no resurrection for us, then the whole of our faith is useless. I mean, we might as well just quit right now. There's, there's nothing for us to pay attention to. Verse 20, now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, some of the cults uh, do weird things with the term first fruits, uh, as though Jesus were the first to be resurrected and they go through a whole bunch of different explanations. The term first fruit literally means the most important. That, that's what it means. Um, so don't get sidetracked if you're listening uh, to somebody who wants to make some strange explanation about Christ being the first fruits uh, from the dead. It simply means he's the most important because Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Okay, without his resurrection, then all resurrections are null and void. They, they, they don't happen. They don't occur. All, all resurrection happens because of Jesus Christ. Uh, the ones that have happened in the past, when you read through the, New, the Old Testament, there are those who were resurrected back to life. You read through the New Testament, Jesus Christ himself resurrects people before he himself is resurrected. So as far as the idea of like, chronological order like jesus was the first person ever resurrected from the dead that's not true okay the point is he's the most important resurrection because he's the source of all resurrection he has power over death right death came into this world according to romans by one man's sin adam's sin introduced death into all of creation jesus christ has power over sin and death. Uh, the fact that he has that power is what makes him the first fruit, the most important one. For since 
by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Uh, we've all sinned, so all of us are doomed to death. But each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruit after those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. When he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. And if you're thinking like this is sort of out of place, right? We have the idea you know, at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. Uh, he's putting this in light of death. So, so this idea of all authority and all power is going to be brought under the rule of Jesus Christ. Here, he's, he's specifically talking about death. Death is going to submit to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is going to call death into account. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet the last enemy that will be destroyed is death for he has put all things under his feet when he says all things are put under him it is evidence or evident that he who puts all things under him is accepted now when all things are made subject to him then the son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him that god may be all in all so, uh, you know, the, the Trinity is seen here. Uh, the, the submission of Jesus Christ to the Father. Certainly Jesus is God, but we see that there is a separation between God the Father and God the Son in the Garden of Gethsemane. As Jesus says to the Father, uh, I don't want to go to the cross, but because you want me to go to the cross... Uh, not my will be done, but yours be done. Uh, you know, there are uh, people that we know, maybe even people we know and love, who are part of the Jesus-only one-ism movement. You know, a lot of the apostolic churches are Jesus-only one-ism churches. And they, they preach, w without even realizing it, uh, what is known as modalism. Okay? That God takes on different modes. Okay. Uh, ancient modalism, when it was taught uh, like by the Greeks or otherwise, you know, God could become an eagle and, you know, appear to you. God could become a man and appear to you. God could become a woman. God could become a fish or, you know, some other created thing. God could take on a different mode. So to say that God takes different forms and different modes, that's modalism. The Christian brand of modalism is to say that Jesus-only movement says at times Jesus is Jesus, and at times Jesus is the Father, and at times Jesus is the Holy Spirit. So that's modalism in a Christian form, that God is taking a different mode. Okay, look. Jesus goes down and meets John the Baptist. John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. He comes up out of the water and the voice from heaven says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, right? And the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus in the form of a dove. And there's Jesus in the water. You see all three persons of the Godhood there. 
When we rewind the story all the way to Genesis, we hear God as he creates Adam say, let us create, let us, plural, right? Elohim, let us create Adam in our image. So we're created in that same triune image as God. Easiest explanation, not very accurate, but easiest explanation is body, soul, and spirit. You can easily identify two in that when our body dies, our soul departs, right? As C.S. Lewis said, there's a ghost that runs the machine, right? There's a personality inside this physical frame that runs the thing. It's a mystery, right? You can faintly see the two internal beings because at times they're at conflict with one another, right? Even if you don't take into account uh, the scripture and the Holy Spirit and all of that, there are times where there's part of you that's saying, I really want to participate in this thing. And there's another part of you that's saying, we're really going to pay the cost and I really don't want to. And usually... The side that says we really want to do this thing even though it's going to cost us wins because the vote is two against one. The flesh wants it and the soul wants it and it overrides the spirit or however you want to look at that. Now, I need to clarify that body, soul, and spirit is just an image of God. It's not how God is created. We can't say God the Father is, you know, the soul and the Holy Spirit is the spirit and Jesus is the body, right? The best way to understand what's being said when God says, let us make man in our own image is the reflection in a mirror, right? You walk by the mirror, that's an image of you, right? It's not an image of anyone else. That that reflection that's there, no matter how you turn, Right? It's reflecting you. That is, but when you walk away, it's not as though the image walks out and gets in the car with your keys and drives off without you. Right? It's simply an image. It's it's not a duplicate of you. Right? It's not the exact physical, you know, spiritual, emotional, mental representation of who you are. We are not the exact physical, mental, emotional, spiritual representation of God. We, we have a lot of characteristics that are derived from his state of existence that he imparted to us. And within that, the triune aspect of our being, our person, is a reflection of how God is. With, within this discussion right here, everything is going to be put under the authority of Jesus by the Father so that Jesus can exalt the Father. Yet when we see Jesus in heaven seated at, it's weird because we see him seated at the right hand of the Father, but then when John shows us that throne, no one's at the right hand. Jesus is on the throne. So our minds are going to be blown when we get there and see all of this unfolding in our actual physical vision. 
simplified in our understanding right here. Jesus Christ came, died, was resurrected, and is going to come and rule on this earth over all of creation. There's still going to be death. For the thousand years that Jesus Christ rules on this earth, there is still going to be death. At the end of that thousand years, there's a cataclysmic war where Jesus destroys the enemy of God. Uh, you see in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 20, speaking of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, it says, No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not yet fulfilled his days. For the child shall be 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. The idea is that there will be people during the 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ who are going to have tremendous longevity, but there's still going to be death. You know, a person that... Wouldn't it be nice... Think about this. If you were to retain your health and some degree of your youthfulness to, uh, you know, get to 50, 60, 70 years old and think... I haven't even started yet. Seriously, it would be kind of nice. I'm not talking about the back pain we wake up with and the joints and knees and loss of vision. I'm talking about like if we still had a good health to our physical frame, but all the stupid lessons that we learn when we're, we can actually put them to use. I mean, for the most part, it's just about the time that we start waking up and realizing things that we realize, wow, i got about 15 more minutes left here on this planet. You know, you're, 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 you're at least crested past the peak of things. Uh, the Lord is going to grant, uh, you know, a very gracious longevity during the millennial reign, uh, but there's still going to be death. Uh, once all of this earth is finished and wiped out, uh, according to, to Revelation chapter 20 into 21, uh, this earth is going to be destroyed and the heavens are going to be destroyed and he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth for us to live on and to live in. It's going to be much bigger than this, right? The uh, planet, roughly 9,000 miles across, right? Heaven, when it arrives here, uh, 12,000 miles cubed. And it's going to be on the earth. The earth's going to have to be much bigger than it presently is in order to house heaven upon it. So, uh, you know, there are some wonderful changes that we have to look forward to uh, within this. Um, before I move on into uh, verse 29 as he continues this discussion, uh, I'm just going to leave off right there with the idea that there is the day coming where Jesus Christ destroys death. Now, uh, he goes into uh, even more discussion regarding resurrection and, and uh, what that's going to look like for the people who are resurrected into life. So uh, rather than uh, try to stop somewhere in the midst of that, we'll just leave off right there and pick up with verse 29 next week. There is a resurrection, and we are looking forward to it. And uh, it'll be a wonderful thing to be reunited with the people that we love and experience uh, you know, God's plan and fulfillment 
in uh, all of those things. So let's pray, and uh, then next week we'll pick up at verse 29. Father, again, we thank you uh, for your love and your graciousness, and we ask that you would minister to us, Lord, that uh, we would hold on to this hope, uh, the fact that death is not the end. Lord, uh, help us to think about uh, how amazing being alive is. Lord, uh, the way that we can see, the way that we see colors, the way that we hear sounds, uh, the, the complexity of of our touch and our nervous system and our thought process and imagination, Lord, help us to reflect upon how amazing being alive is in light of the fact that you are telling us, you are promising us that this is not the end, that there is a resurrection, that all of this miracle of life that you've given us wasn't some accident or it wasn't just given to us so that we could have the hopelessness that someday it was just going to end. Instead, we have the hope that the one who created us and gave us all of these miraculous things has also given us the opportunity to be resurrected back to life, to exist with you as our creator for all of eternity. Fill our hearts with that joy. Fill our hearts with that promise. Help us to focus on you rather than the despair that death brings so many people in this world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.